Support for the Legislative Gazette comes from New York State United Teachers, a union of professionals standing with more than 600,000 workers in education, human services, and health care with the Our Voice, Our Values, Our Union campaign. And United University Professions, representing 37,000 academic and professional employees at SUNY campuses and teaching hospitals across New York State. Frederick E. Cole, President, UUPinfo.org. Lawsuits were immediately filed this week, including by Republicans in the New York State Legislature who sued in state Supreme Court in Steuben County. This after the Senate and Assembly approved new district maps for congressional and legislative seats that the GOP says are blatantly gerrymandered. The Legislative Gazette's Karen DeWitt reports. Read the last section. This actual take it back immediately. The new maps were approved by the Democratic supermajorities in both houses of the legislature after Republicans voiced their complaints over districts that will result in four Republican state senators squeezed into two districts and forced to compete against each other. The maps also redraw the districts of four of eight GOP congressional representatives to add more Democratic voters, which will likely make it harder for them to win re-election in November. The Democrats drew the maps after a bipartisan committee Commission gridlocked and could not agree on one set of maps. Senate Deputy Minority Leader Andrew Lanza called it the greatest power grab ever that he says comes at the expense of the people of New York. Gerrymandering is just not some funny expression that we talk about. It means that the voters were screwed. That's what gerrymandering means. It means the voters were used as pawns to serve one party. Republicans are no strangers to manipulating districts to help their party keep in power. For decades, when the GOP controlled the Senate, they jointly drew the maps with Democrats who lead the state assembly. Each party allowed the other to retain their dominance in their respective houses. It's not only Republicans who are critical of the maps. During debate over the new congressional district lines on Wednesday, Senator Tom O'Mara quoted an assessment from redistricting expert Michael Lee with New York University's Brennan Center to bolster the GOP's argument. The quote is, I think the maps that are proposed in New York for Congress really, in a lot of ways, are a master class in gerrymandering. They take maps that were very responsive and had a lot of competition, and they take out a number of Republican incumbents very strategically. Senate Deputy Majority Leader Michael Gianaris, who defended the maps during debate, answered, That gentleman is mistaken. Gianaris says the maps are drawn fairly and that many of the changes were made to fix the results of Republican gerrymandering in the past. Lee, in an interview, says the maps would not stand up to the standards in the John Lewis Voting Rights Advancement Act that Democrats in Congress hope to pass. There's no question that, you know, this map has a lot of partisan bias in it um, and that it's a problem. The real question, I think, is whether courts are going to be willing to wade into that and whether they feel like they're going to need how much time they're going to need to, to do that. Republicans say a lawsuit is likely. In past decades, though, the state's courts have sided with the legislature over any challengers to the maps. But this time, because of a change to the state's constitution in 2014, the districts cannot be designed to help or harm incumbents or quell competition. Susan Lerner with the government reform group Common Cause says that might give challengers a shot. What's relevant is the fact that there are now stated 
criteria in our state constitution. Pre previously, all the constitution said was the legislature gets to draw the map. Lerner calls the maps a major disservice to voters. Lee says it remains to be seen whether the judges on the state's highest court, the Court of Appeals, will decide to take on what could be a time-consuming case. We have no history with the Court of Appeals ruling on issues like this. You know, none of these judges have had a case that's anything like this before, and so this is uncharted territory. He predicts that the maps will remain in place for at least the 2022 elections. In Albany, I'm Karen DeWitt. listening to the Legislative Gazette, a program about New York State government and politics. I'm David Gustina. Joining us now, Legislative Gazette political observer Alan Shartok. Alan, Democrat-led New York legislature voted to approve new congressional district maps Wednesday, setting in stone drastically different congressional districts for a wide swath of New Yorkers. For the New York Times, a master class in gerrymandering, this time led by New York Democrats. The maps approved by the New York State legislature. The Democrats could lead their party to seize as many as three House seats from Republicans. I mean, I even saw Jim Tedisco from the Capital Region. Schenectady was drawn out of his district. David, this is a very bad thing for the concept of American democracy. You know, the idea that by drawing lines, you deprive people of their rights, of their ability to vote for people, and it gets very complicated. So let's just understand that there are some states, let's say Texas, who can wipe out all their congressmen. They did it once before, 10 years ago. They took out a lot of people. So then you say to New York, but we want you to behave yourselves and to be fair about the way you draw your lines so that everybody has an equal chance. Well, that's not the way they're going to play the game. So if one state does it, the other state does it. And by that time, we are basically depriving people of the ability to vote for the people they want to vote for. You have somebody like Jim Tedisco, a Republican, who has a district, and you say, okay, we don't want him, so we're going to draw him right out so that the people who have been voting for him and who like him can't have their choice anymore. It's just not right. It's not right in Texas where the Republicans are doing it. It's not right in New York State where the Democrats are doing it. Until you get some kind of a national way of approaching the drawing of district lines, and that may never happen, this kind of thing is going to go on. From the New York tabloids, Mayor Adams dines with ex-Governor Cuomo at Midtown Hotspot, Osteria La Baia. According to page six, Mayor Adams spokesperson, quote, Mayor Adams meets with a lot of former government officials to talk about governance, which is particularly important in these unprecedented times. There's nothing political about the conversation, and the mayor stands by his earlier comments that the former governor should have stepped down as he did, end quote. Alan? Well, look, this new mayor of New York has chosen some people who have, let's just say, strange backgrounds. He is a guy who is going to do what he wants to do until something comes up where the tabloids really do get him for doing something he shouldn't be doing. Right now, he is riding high, but people always ride high when they first get elected. The idea that he is associating with Cuomo, I get it. I mean, why not? Cuomo had a very successful career. He talks to the new mayor. Maybe he imparts some ideas and some things that could be done. Maybe not. 
because, David, we weren't sitting at that table, and we don't know what that level of discussion was. But we can say one thing, and that is we wish we did. Yeah, another signal that the governor is going to try to make a comeback, you think? I have never had any doubt about that. You don't count Andrew Cuomo out. You know, I know him pretty well. I talked to him over the years. He's very, very ambitious. And I'm sure that what he's saying to himself is, why should I? People want to count me out? That's their problem. I'm not going to cooperate. And I can see that Cuomo could succeed at a comeback if he plays his cards right. I know I have had my deep suspicions about the way he operates. And I can only say I know him well enough to know he ain't gone. You spoke with the Assembly Minority Leader, Will Barclay, this week for the Capital Connection program. He has endorsed Lee Zeldin, representative Long Island, who is also seen as a, quote, Trumper. You asked him about that. He thought that the only people that were talking about Trump, in fact, were Democrats. Well, it's just silliness. I like Will Barkley very much. He's a of-the-line guy. He tells you what he thinks. But there are some things that he and his fellow Republicans just can't countenance in a place like New York State, which really doesn't like Trump very much. And interesting considering the fact that it was and is his actual hometown, although he may say he lives somewhere else now. If you're in the minority party in New York and the Republicans are in a very small minority, it's a tough job. He's very good at it, by the way. He's a nice man. But there's some things you really can't get around. And Donald Trump is one of them. In New York State, if you're supporting Trump, I don't see how you win. And if you get a guy like Zeldin to run for governor, who has, in my opinion, no chance, N-O, capital N, capital O, no chance to win, and you have to support him, probably because he's a supporter of Trump, it tells you an awful lot about the state of the Republican Party in the Empire State. Legislative Gazette political observer Alan Shartok. Listening to the Legislative Gazette, a program about New York State government and politics. I'm David Gustina. Joining us now, Marina Villeneuve, AP reporter on government, to talk to us about the top news stories in New York this week. We'll start with redistricting. Yes, yesterday, Governor Kathy Hochul, she signed off on the new maps for the state's congressional districts, which give Democrats heavy political advantage over Republicans. The state's legislature approved the new maps on Wednesday. Yesterday, the legislature also approved new maps for Assembly and Senate districts, and those also now will be going to Governor Hochul. The congressional maps have gotten more criticism for being examples of outright gerrymandering that give Democrats a much bigger edge. I have spoken to experts from the Brand Center and Columbia Law School and New York Law School who say that the legislative maps, specifically the Senate maps, it's not the same story there. Those maps do seem to more focus on undoing past gerrymandering by Republicans over the years in New York. The Senate map in particular would shift two 
districts to New York City away from upstate that definitely generated a lot of debate on the Senate and Assembly floors yesterday for sure. Now let's turn to the President of the United States. Made a visit to New York City this week. It had to do with gun violence and crime and both the governor and the mayor of New York City were there. This week, President Joe Biden, he pledged to New Yorkers in the nation that the federal government's going to step up its fight against gun violence by working more closely with police and communities. His strategy is going to rely heavily on buy-in from state and local officials. And he came to New York a day after the funeral for the second of two New York City cops who were shot and killed during a domestic violence call on January 21st. Obviously, here in New York, there's been a huge debate about what is the best way to respond to the increase in gun violence, with Republicans calling for uh, changes to bail reform laws and Democratic leaders not really showing that they're wanting to make changes to that law. Governor Kathy Hochul's pointed out that there's a national increase in gun violence, even in states that don't have bail reform laws. And instead, she's really pushing for better gun tracing programs and working with various states around New York. Sort of remains to be seen whether those sort of efforts will have a significant impact on gun violence. She's also talked about wanting to do more to invest in root causes of gun violence. She is Marina Villeneuve, Associated Press reporter on New York State Government. You can read more at ap.org. Marina, thank you. Thank you. You are listening to the Legislative Gazette, a program about New York State government and politics. I'm David Gustina. Every year, the North Country Chamber surveys its members to gauge how they feel about the regional, state, and national economy. It uses the responses to formulate a business confidence index, indicating how many anticipate economic growth. This year, the overall business confidence is 90%, with 71% anticipating growth over the coming year. Chamber President Gary Douglas tells the Legislative Gazette's Pat Bradley he wasn't surprised, but there were some concerns expressed about potential economic problems. I wasn't surprised in the sense that we knew the underlying strengths in the area, and we knew that business was very much aware of those because it's part of it, the strength in the real estate and construction sectors, 2.7% unemployment. Uh, in Clinton County in, in December, which means an unprecedentedly high level of, uh, of employment in the area. The, uh, the, the record increases in sales tax revenue. I mean, you can look across the board, growth in manufacturing, uh, the success in economic development. But we know that there are things nationally, and they reflected that as well, that they weren't so optimistic about the national economy uh, as they are about the, the area economy. But they they showed that they they care more about the area, that they're more uh, they're more driven by what's happening in their own backyard and their own businesses. Well, there is that good baseline confidence, and it's a regional confidence. The businesses that you did survey do have some concerns, and they include staffing shortages, inflation, supply chain issues, border restrictions. Most of those are federal-oriented or binational issues. How do the regional businesses want those issues addressed? There are some some dark clouds on the horizon. 
Uh, one of them certainly is a continued interference of crossings at the border. I mean, way far away above anything else, 98% said number one federal priority is to get Canada and U.S. back on track to moving towards normalization of border crossings. Uh, so that's a continued concern. Um, uh, inflation, uh, they, they cited that as the number two concern is rising inflation. But interestingly, beyond just saying in a general sense it's a national problem and it's a priority, we asked a sub-question, does it impact your business? And 78% said rising inflation is impacting their particular business operation, the rising cost of their goods, for example, and, and other impacts. So that's important to know. It's not theoretical. Uh, we hear about supply chains. Number three federal concern is that more be done on national, international supply chains. But then 70, 71%, amazing, I thought, 71% said that supply chain problems are directly impacting their business. Uh, contractors not getting supplies, uh, manufacturers having uh, delays with, with parts that are coming in that they need to maintain their production lines. It's from the big to the small that, uh, that uh, those are having impacts. And then there's no question, you know, we know that uh, the 2.7% unemployment in Clinton County as of December, uh, but that, uh, that workforce uh, shortage, that shortage of staffing services, 60% said that's having a direct impact on, on their businesses, uh, causing them to have uh, fewer hours. And we've seen that with restaurants and businesses that we enjoy. And then we just lost our United Express Air Service, not because the market wasn't strong, it was incredibly strong. And we were working with United on some new campaigns this year and, and looking forward to working with them on servicing the World University Games next year in Lake Placid. They can't meet staff. Uh, the ferry reduced its uh, days and hours of service uh, down in Essex County across Lake Champlain because of staffing shortages. So it's starting to affect everything that we do. Gary Douglas, the State Labor Department's Farm Wage Board recently approved lowering the agricultural exemption on overtime from 60 hours to 40 hours. Is the chamber following this issue at all? Uh, we've uh, been very supportive of our friends at the Farm Bureau that we work with very closely and long have. Let them take the leave, the the lead. But uh, we agree. We agree with Billy Jones, uh, who's been a very strong uh, advocate uh, uh, on this issue. Um, you know, it sounds good to the uninformed. It sounds good to the downstaters from Manhattan and Brooklyn, who've never seen a cow, let alone a dairy farm operation, uh, and don't understand the. Uh, first of all, uh, farmers, unlike almost anybody else that's in any kind of business, don't get to set their prices, and and, and most of them are are struggling to maintain family businesses, particularly the family dairy farms, for example, uh, in, in a region like ours. Um, they care about their farm workers, uh, and their farm workers want and, and like and choose the kind of employment that they're doing. And by and large, they're saying, we understand we're going to lose our jobs entirely if, if the farms we work at are made to do this because they can't. They can't just pay time and a half after 40 hours uh, when they need us to do that harvesting or get the, the cows milked or get the apples in. It's one of those uh, those disconnects between reality and somebody's ideal of what it should be like. Agriculture, uh, particularly in the dairy sector, is not like any other business in the country. Gary Douglas, we were mentioning the border earlier. What's the potential impact of federal vaccination requirements for Cross-border truckers, my understanding is both the Canadian and U.S. governments have now mandated that. Uh, the, the problem with that particular situation, not only is it's, it's 
its certain effect on supply chains, which we're hearing are already impacting negatively everybody in business and affecting inflation. Uh, so there's a crossover there. If these truckers were such a threat and causing such a spread of COVID, then why did you let them for almost two years as essential workers go back and forth, by the way, with no incident that I've ever heard of because of the isolated way they work and the limited interaction? Um, why didn't you do it earlier? Well, it's because you knew and, and believed and correctly that it was not really a problem. So why all the over the overkill now on that? It's because it's something that, that Canada started at the U.S. followed, um, but it's a wrong thing. It's a mistake. While we will continue to point that out, I have no illusions that there's political will to reverse that in particular. So let's refocus on moving forward together uh, on how we start to get the border fluid again. Put some metrics out there and some planning out there to make sure that, by gosh, by the time we get to summer, we're back to normalcy. More information on the North Country Chamber's Business Confidence Index and Annual Issue Survey is at wamc.org. For the Legislative Gazette, I'm Pat Bradley. You are listening to the Legislative Gazette, a program about New York State government and politics. I'm David Gustina. The city of Schenectady, home of General Electric, was once a nursery for broadcasting. One of the nation's first commercial radio stations began broadcasting 100 years ago. A new exhibit at the Museum of Innovation and Science is celebrating the history of WGY. The Legislative Gazette's Lucas Willard took a tour. Colin Hager speaking. This is radio station WGY in Schenectady. W for wireless... G for General Electric, and Y for the last letter in our city. WGY was created by GE in 1922 and still operates today under different ownership as a news talk station. The station's history is currently on display at MySci in a photo exhibit called WGY Radio's Laboratory Celebrates Its Centennial. Chris Hunter, the museum's vice president of collections and exhibitions, took me on a tour of the exhibit located in a new gallery inside the museum. So it was about the 10th commercial station licensed in 1922. And because it was formed by GE's publicity department and not so much the engineers that formed a lot of the other early radio stations, they really placed a premium on entertainment and kind of the development of broadcasting. The exhibit contains 50 photos from the earliest days of the station until 1980. There are photos of staff performing radio dramas, celebrities including Amelia Earhart and Harry Houdini, and then Governor of New York, Franklin D. Roosevelt. So this is one of Roosevelt's early fireside chats. They became really famous once he became president and, and he gave these personal talks every weekend, kind of comforting people through the Great Depression and World War II, but he kind of perfected the format while New York State Governor here on WGY. WGY was the first affiliate of NBC and during the Second World War provided news to the nation. Included in the exhibit are some archival broadcasts. This clip is from a 1952 anniversary event 
containing the voice of another would-be president. Here is an original palaphotophone recording aired by this station on Christmas Eve, 1922. The first voice you will hear is that of Calvin Coolidge, then Vice President of the United States. Whatever it is desirable for a people to have, here it may be secured. Opportunity is open. The, oh, yeah, the punchline behind the Coolidge recording is that his voice was very nasal and he heard it the first time and he's like, I don't sound like that, I sound horrible. And his wife said, nope, nope, that's, that's exactly how you sound. The radio dial was not as crowded in WGY's early days as it is today. Hunter explains WGY's signal could be heard across New York and into neighboring states. Because it became a showpiece for, for GE to kind of show off its new transmitting equipment, now, it, it gained an outsized influence. Hunter said that GE's experimenting with a 100,000 and then 200,000 watt transmitter in the 30s brought WGY all the way to San Francisco. Hunter says in the early years, commercial radio stations served in a similar purpose to public access television today. WGY was a community station. Each station basically did, did everything. WGY would have a classical music program. They'd have swing music. They'd have country music. They'd have a kind of women's program, they'd have church programs, and it was all kind of rolled up into one station. Here's archival sound from a basketball game in 1929. The ball goes out of bounds, Funston takes it out of the bounds for Schenectady, passes it down to DeFeo in the middle of the field. DeFeo to Funston, and Funston dribbles up for off the line and shoots his basket. The exhibit WGY Radio's Laboratory celebrates its centennial is on view at MySci in Schenectady until May 8th. For the Legislative Gazette, I'm Lucas Willard. And that about does it for this week's show. We had help from the New York State Public Radio Network. For copies, call 1-800-323-9262. That's 1-800-323-9262. Ask for program number 2205. Or just listen or podcast on the web at wamc.org. And join us again next week at this same time for more news on New York State government and politics. For the Legislative Gazette, I'm David Gustina.